welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. I'm your host, Josh Miles. Hey, I started this new thing on YouTube and it's called 59 Second Friday. So if you're into video, I'd appreciate it if you'd check it out. I give tips and advice on marketing and design in under a minute, delivered every Friday. So head over to youtube.com slash Josh Miles and let me know what you think. I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe and comment on the most recent video to let me know your thoughts. Today on Obsessed with Design, I catch up with Vice President of Design at Growy, Michael Siam. Michael's an industrial designer by background, but after chatting with him, I could tell he was a designer with a capital D. And I think after you listen in, you'll agree. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Michael Siam. Okay, kids, today on Obsessed with Design, I'm chatting with Michael Siam all the way from Dusseldorf, Germany. Michael has led design for companies such as Kohler, Sterling, Procter & Gamble, Whirlpool Europe, Minimal, and PepsiCo Sports & Nutrition. Michael's design philosophy ensures the sense of purpose and meaning of products and experiences does not get lost in today's mass-produced global economy. Michael's experienced in multiple facets of design, ranging from product, packaging, brand experiences, user testing, ethnographic research, interaction design, defining strategies, and envisioning future concepts. That's a lot of design. Regardless of the challenge, Michael is driven to create meaningful experiences for end users. So Michael, welcome to Obsessed with Design. Hey, thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. Sounds, uh, sounds quite formal when I, when I hear it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's sounds like there's a lot of design in your story, and I always love learning about origin stories. So maybe you could uh, wind the clock back a little bit and tell us about how you found yourself in the design world and ultimately in Germany. Yeah, it's great. Um, I'm happy to share this story. To be honest, I was uh, in, in high school. I was actually even junior, junior high. Uh, I was always creative. Uh, I found my love for painting, drawing very, very early in life. I'm a product of a teacher and a CFO. Um, so there isn't really creativity, <laughs> creativity in, in either of my parents. Um, but what I did have, and I was very lucky, is that they allowed me to uh, and fostered my, my passion for creativity early on. So I remember very early in junior high school, and even before that, I was doing painting and all sorts of private art lessons. And, uh, you know, I guess maybe there is a little bit of creativity in my genealogy, my grandmother painted quite a bit. She was self-taught. Mm. Um, so maybe I picked it up from, from her, but, uh, where I found design was, was quite lucky. I had a few extra classes in high school. Um, I skipped PE, uh, and took a computer aided drawing class and I just went crazy. I thought this is so cool. It was brand new technology. Um, and I spent every you know, moment I had in high school during that semester, really learning 3D modeling. And this was in high school. This was really early uh, in the development of 3D develop, 3D software. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought at that time that I was going to be an architect. So I went to school thinking this is what I was going to be, uh, an architect. And uh, I was able to get into the architecture program, but I didn't last long in architecture mm-hmm. because I made a mistake and walked through the architecture and design building and found industrial design, sat in a critique, 
and changed my major within uh, six months of university. So, oh wow, that's cool. So, so it was really by by accident that I found design. But you know, in a way, I think I it was it was because I always put myself in these kind of creative environments, and and being in this this university allowed me to uh, you know to to find find design as a as a program. If you don't mind camping out on this for a minute, what was it about that critique that inspired you to completely change paths? Yeah, great question. I talk about this a lot, actually, because what where I grew up, I grew up in Chicago, and it was the land of architecture. And when you know, in my formative years, there was a lot of architecture happening in Chicago. So, I I thought, you know, kind of creativity in big scale. I thought, you know, urban planning, urban urban scale. And when I made this this kind of journey through the building, it was a little bit of a maze of a building. So I was just kind of exploring. I, I came across a senior design class uh, that was critiquing toys and i never made the connection between kind of a like a handheld or smaller object mm-hmm. and and creativity and I, I it just really i just sat there and i remember i asked can i stay can i listen to this because i was so generally interested and the the professor um, was like absolutely stay you know this is if you want to listen this is this is your chance so i asked a lot of questions after the, the class was over and uh you know, luckily this, this professor, uh, you know, told me, go check out some books on industrial design, head to the library, you can research this. And, you know, I did it straight away. I, I walked out of that critique, just really thinking, okay, something that's, that's not nature, but has to be handheld. All these things need to be designed. And I started Mm -hmm. thinking, wow, there's so many things around me that one are poorly designed and, and two need, need to be designed. So it just, the, this idea kind of came to me. And I think a lot of a lot of people today that aren't industrial designers, they take a lot of the objects for granted around them. And that's actually a good thing in my mind because, because it means it's working for them, right? A lot mm-hmm. of times we notice things that become problems in our life. But uh, yeah, so much of the design world is, is around us. And, and at that time, I didn't realize it. So I think when you're saying take it for granted, it's almost just this idea that it's kind of seamless to your experience, right? It's just not... It's not that it's not there. It's just so natural to use or interact with. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly, that's exactly what I mean. And I think that's, that's a goal of many designers is we want, we want the products to, to work seamlessly in, in our, in our lives. And, uh, you know, in many cases we, we want to delight people, but at the same time, it just needs to be really fluid and natural. And I think this is the role of design. And, and it wasn't until that critique that I, that I saw that opportunity, you know, I had, I had thought about spaces and places, mm-hmm. but really, really didn't understand that the objects within those spaces and places are just as interesting to, to design. And, you know, the ironic part of my job now is I deal with a lot of architects who have to design <laughs> spaces and places, uh, and my objects go, go within. So it really creates an empathy for you know, I understand their world because I, I started with that as a general interest. And I think it really helps me to understand the, the world of architecture. So from school, you worked for a couple of different places in Chicago with some some varying types of products and design. So talk us through that path and what kind of led you from place to place. Yeah, my my journey has been. Uh, I was just reflecting on this with a very very good career mentor for for me, and I think um, if there are any young designers out there, I I have some some advice that I want to connect at the end for their careers. But you know, my journey started by kind of sticking my neck out. Uh, my first job, it was a very difficult time. 
there weren't many design jobs available, but uh, was in the I was in school actually, and I was in my senior year. And one of the professors walked into the model shop and said, "Hey, there's a, a local company. Uh, it was Kohler, but it was their division, Sterling, which is based in Chicago. They need some help urgently. Anybody want to do it?" And I was just the closest person standing to him, and I literally just raised my hand. I'm like, "I'll do it." <laughs> and I'm in. I had no idea what it what it was, um, and it was such a you know if I look back now it was such a simple project and I struggled with it completely. I just didn't know how to do it, and and luckily I, I I found a you know a designer within the company that wanted to help me, wanted to grow me. It was really somebody that was was in, influential in my career early to to teach me uh, because what I realized I learned in school wasn't always uh, exactly what I needed in the, in the professional world. But I got an internship out of it and that internship turned into a job. And, uh, you know, it's, it's in the, it's in the part of my career that I'm working in now. I mean, so I've come full circle in a way I started in, in the sanitary industry with, with Kohler under their brand Sterling. And uh, here I am now uh, as one of their competitors, but uh, I have great respect for the for the company in general because I learned a lot through the through the experience. And so that also took you to PepsiCo. So, what was that transition like? Well, I I went uh, from Kohler. I went to uh, Southwest Michigan, and I was you know this was this was an interesting part. So I went to uh, I went from sh- living in Chicago to a small town in Michigan, uh, but that was. Really, Kohler wanted to move me up to Wisconsin, and I wasn't so interested in going to Wisconsin. Uh, I was thinking I was going to try to stay in Chicago, but I ended up taking a job in southwest Michigan, so another small town. But it was really around the opportunity of – I was asked in this, this interview with uh, Whirlpool, or it was KitchenAid at the, the time, and they said, you know, what would your dream project be? And I said, I love coffee. I was a barista in college. I would love to design an espresso machine. And they said, well, good answer, because that's your first project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I, I took the job to work under the KitchenAid brand and I spent two and a half years doing, doing that, uh, for their small appliances group and really changed the trajectory of the company launched 18 projects in, in, uh, less than two years time and really just, you know, tripled the, the size of the brand. I mean, it was, was very, very strong growth within Williams Sonoma. And, uh, at that point in my life, I, I also got married. So I had a big life change, married another designer. And, uh, you know, from there, my career took me into a completely different trajectory. I was I was really pushing Whirlpool or at that time KitchenAid to to send me to Europe. I, I had just gotten this kind of taste for European design. And I said, you know, they had an office in Milan. And I said, can you can is there any way that I can get a transfer? I'm a young designer. Want to I want to see the world. I want to experience different cultures. And they kept saying, no, we don't think this can happen. We would like to do this, but we just cannot find the, the reason. So I actually left the company. Uh, I left on good terms, had a very, very good relationship with the, the management team. But I just said, OK, I've got to try some other things as a, as a designer. So I went into consumer packaged goods. This took me from southwest Michigan to Cincinnati. Once I went into to Cincinnati, I worked for Procter & Gamble for four and a half years and learned a variety of different uh, things with with CPG, consumer packaged goods, which is very very different than what I was doing in the in the past. And I, I really excelled in terms of how how to manage brands. Um, I did a lot more work with advertising agencies. I got involved much more on the go to market side of of design. 
even though I was still working on kind of the upstream innovation areas. So this really took me off. But I always felt like it wasn't my passion. I didn't have I didn't have the same motivation I did with with true product design. Although I found it interesting, I didn't think it was where I was going to land my entire career. And uh, by chance, I was in San Francisco and uh, met up with one of my old Whirlpool colleagues. So I'm taking you through the long the long route of, of my career yeah. so we can we can dive in. But uh, by chance, I was in San Francisco, met up with one of my former managers at Whirlpool. And he said, you know, would you like to come back? And I said, you guys know the answer. I would like to come back, but it needs to be in, in Italy. He said, OK, we'll make that happen. And I thought that was a little bit of a joke. I said, because I'd been asking, you know, for for, for the years before. I said, OK, they're just they're just they're just playing with me, you know. But uh, sure enough, I returned to Cincinnati and, and got a, a phone call and a, a formal letter saying, you know, we'd like to bring you over there to, to lead advanced development uh, in design for uh, for Whirlpool Europe. And uh, I think the next day I walked up to my boss and said, I'm moving to Italy. I'm leaving. You know? <laughs> and, and, and I think they were jealous in a way. It was like, wow. Well, yeah. You know, so. The killer opportunity. So can I hold the door open for you? It was. <laughs> right. uh, so it was a great step in my career. And I did that for, for nearly five years. So had you been to Italy before you decided that's where you wanted to be? I, I did, actually. I was. Uh, I got there one time. Uh, to work on this espresso machine. So I actually worked with an Italian mm, supplier cool. and I, and it was actually a horrible experience. I got off the plane, lost, <laughs> they lost my luggage. They were like, but I just, I, it was, I fell in love with the country. Uh, there's something about the passion for life about, about Italy. It's such an inefficient yet passionate place. Um, you know, so it was just eye opening for me. And, and what I found, you know, really, uh, for me, the the energizing part of it was it was a slower pace, but I was constantly finding new stimulus and new inspiration because I had alien eyes. You know, everything was new to me, mm. the language, the people, the culture, the the behaviors, you know, I just some some people describe like, well, how would you how would you describe your Italian experience? And it's just it it was every day something new. And I think as a creative, when you're constantly challenged by new uh new things and new situations it's fuel at least it is for me but i think uh for me that was that was a really transformative part of my career and i grew a lot as a as a person you know when you realize that you can't walk into a restaurant and just flat out speak english you had to you know i had it forced me to do things differently it forced me to rethink things i had to really plan uh my days and my activities differently but i made so many friends and learned so many new things whether it was through cultural experiences you know going going to an italian wedding just different different life experiences that you would never get if you didn't step out of that space i love that idea of alien eyes and i think it's it's uh one of the things in young designers especially you know to put it differently to just to have the the curiosity to to look at things differently and to really you know, pay attention to what you're seeing. I think that's, that's so essential. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other, the other part of, of what's important, I think for, for designers is, is the, the, the question why? Yeah, absolutely. Why was it like this? Why, you know, and, and so when you see something that if it's outside of your, your cultural norms and you ask these questions, you know, sometimes the, the answers lead you to such amazing places 
And I think it's really important for designers to have that, that curiosity uh, and the follow through of asking that question. And then the other important word I tell my team all the time is no. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I don't mean like, I mean, no, like we won't do that. We have to do this. It's like to really have a strong point of view as a designer. So to have the curiosity, but also to have the, the, the confidence to say, this is the right way. And it's based on these, these, these principles. And I think, and I think those, you know, those, those things of kind of that vocabulary of the, or the, the alien eyes and the, the two vocabularies of why and no, for me, were really what I developed when I stepped out of my comfort zone into a new culture because it, it kind of amplified the, the need for those, um, those elements uh, of my life. And I think that was a really transformative part of my, my career. So I'm, I'm really curious after that experience in, in Italy, what, where that led you next? Yeah. So the, the so the Italy, the Italy stop, um, which was an amazing life experience in general, not just a career experience, but it was, uh, you know, I started to question as I looked back at what stops I've had along my, my, my career, uh, I started to look at what gaps uh, I had. And at, at that time, I had worked for kind of major companies, big brands, like really complex corporations. And I was missing the agency uh, side and I was missing the startup side. Mm-hmm. And uh, as as I was frequently going through Chicago, as I lived in Italy, I would go back to Southwest Michigan for, for the headquarters. And I was uh, frequently dropping through Chicago. And at that time, I uh, was introduced to Scott Wilson and uh, sort of made contact with him and became friends. And and uh, in a way, I, I always had this ambition. I was going to kind of invite myself to to work for him. And it happened. Uh, so I kept saying, you know, I would, would love to figure out how to get back to Chicago. And we met, you know, we met a, a couple of times in Chicago and, and really solidified it um, during one of the design fairs in, in Milan. And at the time, he was going through a through a startup uh, incubation phase, and and thought you know it would be a good opportunity to bring somebody like me who's had a lot of discipline in corporate design to to his kind of world of, of startups. And uh, it was a great experience. Um, it was probably one of the hardest experiences of of my life. Um, working for Scott Wilson is you know extremely well known. I I respect him like one of my one of my life mentors. Is probably the most ambitious designer I've ever worked for, and probably the bravest. Mm-hmm. Really, really trying to change the trajectory of designers as service providers to designers as as business leaders. And so this was just a great opportunity to to run. And I helped him run a startup called uh, Lunatic, which was uh, I think we had we had run three Kickstarter programs, so we were using you know, different platforms to, to kind of raise funds and self-start a company and build a brand from scratch. And it was, it was a, it was an amazing experience because we, we went from kind of zero to, to a lot of funding to getting products in the Apple store to probably one of the hardest lessons ever uh, for any business was uh, when your, your core product is pulled by, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, we, we were developing the the nano watch straps, right? So we were we were selling mm-hmm. kind of the first wearable device was uh, was was based on our watch strap uh, and Apple's Nano. And the moment they pulled that off the shelf, uh, we were sitting on a lot of inventory and no longer had sales. So this was when Apple decided they were going to get into their own wearables with the Apple Watch, and mm-hmm. they, they really shifted their 
iPod platform from this uh, smaller smaller device. And it really disrupted our world. We had to pivot, we had to shift, and we went into more protective cases. It was it was never really a design problem for me. It was all it was all a business learning and how to set up a, a business and a startup and managing the brand with a very, very small team. I mean I went from working with you know 300 designers globally to trying to do everything uh, as four or five people. Oh wow. So it was just a very, very different activity. And uh, after about two years uh, working with Scott on that, I had approached him and I said, you know, I'm getting a little burned out on on the startup side. Can I shift over to the agency? I think I can bring in some clients with my network and and try to help you more as a kind of a creative director on the design consulting side. And so it was nice that I had I was sitting in an agency, but I was working on the startup side of, of his business. But I was able to, after a couple of years, also also shift over to the to the consulting side. So I spent some time with Scott in Chicago on both growing his consultancy and, and helping him to incubate the startup, which we ultimately exited from during that time. And, uh, you know, I think from that part of my career... What I what I realized there was I I have more passion uh, I think in the corporate landscape I I would love to start my own business at some point I think mm-hmm. that I I still have that passion but I really missed the interaction with large complex businesses and shifting the trajectory of a of a company influencing the roadmap um, a lot of times in the consulting world is the projects come to you and they're pretty defined right so they want mm-hmm. they want a specific outcome so i had i had missed that a little bit and that's where the pepsi stop came in at a had a very interesting period at, at pepsi but i actually i to be honest but as part of this discussion i don't want to focus on pepsi because it was such a short stop in my in my career that literally three months into that job i was being courted by my my current role at, at groa so yeah you know, it was it was such a short stop that they were, you know, they were really interested in speaking to me. So I think we should focus a little bit now on the on the grower career. Yeah. Well, let's do that. Tell us a little bit about I mean, obviously you had relevant project experience to what Grow was doing, but what ultimately attracted you to Germany? Well, I think the interesting part about this is, you know, if you look at it from their lens, you know, here's here's a German company. Um, that was just acquired by a Japanese company and they were starting to talk to an American designer. You know, it makes no sense from, <laughs> from, from, from their world. It makes absolutely no sense, but in a way it makes complete sense. And I'll, I'll explain this, but what attracted me was I had, uh, I, I had known the, the person that had my role previously, uh, a guy by the name of Paul Flowers. He's still involved with, with our, our company, but he's moved out of Groa into our parent company to, to help build design capability. So it was a guy that I respected greatly and he opened the door to this conversation because we had a, a mutual friend. Uh, but the real interesting part was I, I was renovating my house or my loft in Chicago and I specified all Groa products before oh, I interesting. the conversation. So I, I had always, I had always had a kind of an affinity for this brand. So when I... Was it the aesthetics of it that that you were attracted to? Yeah, I'm a little bit of a I'm a little bit of a Euro snob uh, in a way. I mean, I think the, <laughs> the the time the time of living in in Italy, you know, shaped my kind of aesthetic preferences to more European based design. So I think when I renovated my space in Chicago, you know, I just I just wanted more of that kind of European design aesthetic. And so when it came down to the 
to the plumbing fixtures. I said, okay, you know, this, I know this brand, I respect this brand and, and I would love to put it in my house. And so, so I did. And, and when they started approaching me, I was like, oh, this is, this is really interesting. I said, I just tell you, I said, I just installed your, your essence line in, in my house. And they were blown away. They were like, mm. wait, your resume says you worked for one of uh, our competitors and you just, you know, so tell me more about this. And, and so, <laughs> so they could see that I already had a general appreciation for the brand. And then, then it came down to the kind of the cultural fit. And, and I knew at the beginning, they're like, okay, an American coming into, coming into a, a complex German companies, never worked in Germany. You know, this is, this is kind of a strange thing. Yeah. But I, I remember sitting with the CEO and I said, I said, you know, I've always put myself into challenging positions and I think it, it reaps benefits because I look at things with a completely new perspective. I don't have any of the cultural bias. You know, if you're trying to drive change, I'm your guy. Mm -hmm. If you want to stay the course, then it's probably not the, the right discussion. And I think that that response really resonated with them. And, you know, I have a great relationship. It's still the C same CEO. So I report directly to the CEO and, you know, I asked him a couple of things. I said, you know, do, do I get to make the design decisions? And he said, yeah, well, that's why we would bring somebody like you in. We want to trust you with, with the design uh, organization. And so I, I really feel like I'm in probably one of the most unique positions where, you know, it's, it's what I would call the next level of design. Design is an independent function. I report directly to the CEO. I have full control over over the roadmap. I can influence where where we go. I can set the trajectory of the company. I make the decisions with with the team, and I have a lot of you know I, I have an equal seat at the table of of a very complex organization uh, with the board level members here. So it's a really it's a really powerful position, but it comes with a lot of responsibility. And I think, you know, that's, that's the fortunate situation that I'm in. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, maybe tell us about kind of what an average, if there is such a thing, what an average day or week looks like for you in this role. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's no, there's no real average. Um, you know, I've been here three years now and I can, I can tell you, <laughs> I, I, I can tell you that every day is a, a different, a different day. Every day is a, a different dynamic. But what what I did systematically since I've been here is, you know, for the first two years, I really worked on driving some innovation in the portfolio. And we can dive into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then and then within the last year, I've been out more on a public speaking kind of position within the company where I'm not only leading the team, but I'm also sort of helping to tell the story with what we're doing from an innovation perspective and how we're strategically changing the the game. So. You know, I, I would say I probably put my head down for the first two years just to just to get the company in a direction that I think, you know, help get in the direction that we're we're trying to head strategically. And now we feel, you know, we took our first chance at, at going there. I think we've put together some amazing products, some amazing game changing, very different from where the typical industry is heading. And now we're starting to tell this story and we're continuing that story as well behind the scenes. So we're going to continue to innovate and drive. And so. Like that's that's a little bit of, of where it's at. So what does the day average day look like? The average day probably starts with a cup of coffee, like like every every mm -hmm. other person. But what I do, I think, with with my team is uh, there's there's two interactions per day that I try to try to give them is 
the beginning of the day, I come in and I try to sit down with with at least the designers that I know need need to work through a certain problem or whatnot. So I, I try to do that early in the day and then I'll give them a little bit of, you know, we'll sit either with my sketch notebook or I'll sit together and watch them, you know, work and whether it's on CAD and we'll talk through it and I'll say, okay, I think we should do this, this and this and, and really help them and say, okay, now I'll leave you alone for the rest of the day. Just focus on this, but mm-hmm. let's, let's come back when you're ready. And then the second interaction tends to be, at the end of the day, we'll look and say, okay, did that work? Was our assumption right? And, you know, so I, I like these kind of like early morning pulse checks, end of the day pulse checks and giving the designers the freedom in the course of the day to work without interruption. That's, that's, that's an ideal day. You know, then there's, then there's the, of course, I get involved in a lot of the strategy sessions. So I have to put myself outside of the design department and really work with, with other functions and making sure we're on the roadmap. Sometimes we're doing creative direction on advertising. You know, it's always, always different. But I think for me, the philosophy is always these kind of early morning interventions, late evening interventions and keeping the creativity flowing for me. So I really I really value working directly with the team, not always doing the design work, but helping them work through it and giving them a freedom to, to, to create and giving them space to create. So in your role, are you ever sort of single-handedly working on design elements or, or product design, or are you more kind of overseeing the, the creative vision of what the rest of the design team is up to? I, I would say it's fair to say that my my focus is on fostering the creativity and and making sure the the, the team is is working against the the business. My job is is very simple to define: is I connect creativity to the business need. So I have I have to have a strong foundation of where we want to go strategically, and I have to move the team in that direction. Now I will tell you that every once in a while I steal the mouse from the designer, and I'll I'll happily start to crank away on CAD with them <laughs> right. a little bit. So so I still. I still do that, but I think my time is is better spent letting the designers design, but making sure I'm connecting the dots back to the to the business need. You know, I, I always have a journal with me. I always have a notebook. I you know I'm constantly. I mean, I work with some of our. I have one designer in New York, one designer in Brazil, one designer in Shanghai, and I'm mm. constantly like sketching, snapping a photo, WhatsApping them, or you know. So we so we do a lot of creative collaboration but you know my my focus is fostering that creativity majority of it how would you or maybe how might you think through with a designer who's who's stuck or kind of is having a hard time getting past a certain decision what what might you do to help them along or help them see things differently Oh sure, this is uh, this is actually a, a common a, a common thing I think many creatives experience, right? So we all we all get stuck in in life at, at times, and I think one of one of the things that I like to do, and and I've done this since I arrived, and I think this is maybe something I picked up at different steps along my career, but maybe uh, Scott Wilson was always the the master at this. Is what I would call kind of chaotic disruption is. Sometimes at the beginning of a project, I will put two very different designers together and I have a little bit of a cage match. You know, I, I, yeah. will, uh, I will give them both the same brief, but keep them a little bit competitive uh, on that. And they, they, my team started to pick up on that and they, they kind of like it. You know, it's a little bit like who's going to who's going to, you know, it's healthy, but it's not it's 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 set up on purpose. And I think uh, mm-hmm. so I like to put a little bit of uh, competition 
in in the in the early phase. And then I usually, depending on who I feel has got the energy and the passion, I let them carry through the the project. But sometimes they hit a wall, and I bring back another designer. And I have I have one project that we're working on that. Uh, it, we we call it the it's like the office whore. I mean, I'm not kidding. Like it's been passed from <laughs> it's, it's it's been passed from designer to designer to designer, and and we laugh about it as a as a team. But it's gotten so much better because we've moved it from one one set of eyes to another to another, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's very different than these guys are used to to working, but somehow you know, it, it works. And I've had other projects where one designer's just nailed it at the beginning, right? And then the hard work is just to, to execute and get it, get it through the engineering process. So there's no, there's no secret formula, but I have a few methods that I've built in, I think, to the, to the team that uh, every once in a while I have to pull a little lever to, to get people unstuck, I guess. It sounds like those are a couple of things that you've brought culturally to the team that maybe weren't there before. Do you feel like there's anything else that that you've introduced to the culture that has has benefited or kind of changed how the team works? I think uh, culture to me is is one of the things I'm most most proud of. I think uh, with this team, you know, I I wake up every day and I can't wait to to say hello to them. I can't wait to like work with these guys. And this is really important for for a design leader. Is you know, I I'm constantly telling my CEO that I it's important for me that they never see me break down. Right? Like they mm. s- some days I will lose battles and I don't ever let it show. You know, to to these guys, like I have to keep the energy up, I have to keep the passion up, and I have to keep the the motivation up. So I have to role model the behavior that I want to see in the the studio, the positivity, the belief that we can constantly change. So that's something I've tried to bring into the culture because I think what I saw before was a lot of independent work, and I've tried to bring in more team based behaviors. You know, we have this great tradition. Uh, there's 20, 20 people in our studio. Every person that walks in shakes the hand or gives a, a, a kiss to every person in the studio. It's mm. crazy, right? Walk in the door, I shake hands, I, I give some of the, the girls a kiss on the cheek, you know, say good morning. And we do that when we walk in and when we leave. And there's nobody in this building that does this, right? It's just usually very functional, just get get in, get your work done, flip the computer on, grab your cup of coffee. But we really make it a human interaction. And I think this is, you know, this is something that so many designers have this attitude that I think it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of this pompous egotistic attitude. And I, and I, I shut that stuff down immediately. What I want is for, for a designer to role model the empathy that we need to have, the respect that we need to have, you know? So I really think kindness goes a long way. We're trying to design for people. So if you're an asshole, it doesn't work. (laughs) Right. It really, it really doesn't. And, and this is, you know, this is what I keep saying. It's like, we have to all play, play the game and we have to role model in the company because sometimes corporations are pretty nasty, but we're, we're trying to role model a very empathetic point of view uh, within the, the company. You know, it doesn't mean we're, we're weak, but it means that we're inclusive. It means that we want to, we want to bring in other thoughts where, you know, ideas can come from anywhere. I want to shift gears a little bit because I think this is really interesting that you guys are focusing on something that in the Western world, uh, especially in the U.S., may even be foreign to, to most of us is this idea of water security. Can you 
fill us in a little bit on on what your take is on that and what water security is all about? Yeah, we we uh, absolutely. I think this is this is a great highlight for us in terms of uh, you know how we're changing the the industry. When I came into the company uh, three years ago, this is the first project to, that I really started diving into. And and the basic idea was if you look at if you look at the way water has been managed within the home today. I mean, this industry looks very, very simple, right? There's a mechanical connection to a public supply of water, and most of it's pretty dumb. <laughs> it, it's, it's you know, plumbing standards are pretty low there. You know, it's just, it, it's, it's not very intelligent. So we started this question, but why? You know, what's, why, why can't, why can't I tell you my water footprint? Why can't I tell you how much consumption I'm, I'm having? You know, why, why is it so frequently, especially in America, that you lose personal goods to water damage? Mm. You know, why do, we, why do we accept this? So we started to look at all the, the data behind it. And, and what we found was water damage is, is a, I think in in Germany, I don't know the stats exactly in the in the U.S., but uh, it's like six out of ten people have experienced water damage in their homes. So it's very high. I think it's even yeah. high, higher in the U.S. I mean, I, I I often go to presentations. I'm like, raise your hand if you've lost something personal to to water damage, and the amount of people that raise their hands is shocking. So we knew there was an opportunity there to to do it. So we we said, okay, what would our first you know smart home entry be? And we developed two well really three components to one platform so we developed basically what's called growth sense and this is a a small kind of uh, cylindrical sensor that can be placed anywhere in the home where you want to be notified of either kind of a, a humidity threshold that you've exceeded so if you you know, if you have a problem with mold growth or whatnot, you can set your humidity monitoring thresholds so you can measure room temperature. But if, for instance, you have a bathtub that overflows, this product will trigger an alarm. So it will sense the, the excess of humidity or water and it will trigger a notification on your smartphone. But we knew we knew that just that by itself, that that's a little bit like a fire alarm, right? Mm hmm. Tells you of a fire, but it is not going to put out the fire. Okay, <laughs> it's a little so, too late. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's there's definitely a need for that. But we developed another product that really has kind of the intelligence built into it, and this is a this is a product called GrowSense Guard, and they're both very iconic. These these products have have won. I mean, it's like 16 design awards since we launched them a little over a year ago. These are really getting recognized in the industry. Very disruptive innovations, very well-designed consumer experience behind it. But the, the other product's called SenseGuard. And this is a product that goes in your mainline water supply closest, it's in your cellar, so closest to where the public supply is coming in. And what this product does is this, this has a basically an algorithm built into it that measures water flow. And what it can do is it can tell you if you have even a micro leak with inside your walls. So it knows by checking the pressure that if there's been a pressure change, that there's something happening. It, it sees unnatural patterns. So it's got a self-learning algorithm that says, OK, there's potential leak here happening and it will shut off the, the water supply. Mm -hmm. So it becomes essentially a water security system and water damage can happen from from anything. Burst pipes, probably one of the most common, you know, aging plumbing. We, you know, a lot of a lot of older homes. This is a product that if you've got it installed, it's going to immediately shut off the the water supply. 
It's going to alert you via your your smartphone, and you're able to you know to to save a lot of damage. Now, this is a product that we're launching globally. We've developed first in in Europe in the in a global sense, we're partnering, so it's an open platform. So we've partnered with Nest, and I think there'll be other IoT or kind of smart home platforms that we'll integrate this system into. So now, you know, water was one of the the first untouched elements within the the the, the home, but it was a very it's 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 uh, more frequent than fire damage in terms of insurance claims, and it's very very costly. Mm. The average insurer is only paying 60% of the damage out too. So it's a, it's a big, big problem for the insurance industry. This, is a, this has opened up completely new scenarios for us. What we've realized now is that we can also help consumers identify their water profiles and how much water they're using and, and really think about sustainability and, and water usage within the household. So there's a lot of possibilities that will come beyond this platform for us so it's been a it's been an interesting journey and this is where i think we're really trying to inject more intelligence into uh our brand do you feel like that'll be kind of a a standard for your future lines or will this always be kind of a an option well i think without i mean without giving away the the full-blown strategy and a lot of our assumptions i think we see a lot of potential beyond just the the home and and different areas where we can apply this i mean when you think about hotels and how hotels manage water and shutting off water supplies and more intelligent control of water there's so many different possibilities so this this may you know i think i think what it's doing for the culture of the company is it's it's helping us really capture insights behind more problems with managing water in the home. And it may set off, set us off on a completely different trajectory because of this first, first product. So we're learning continuously. So I don't know where it will take us, but I think it can't continue the way it was because it's really not a smart way to manage water. Mm -hmm. You know, water is not an unlimited resource. We need to put more respect behind it. And and believe it or not, a, a slow drip in your toilet, you know, is probably worse than spending an extra three minutes in the shower. Yet we oftentimes guilt ourselves because we've maybe taken three minutes in the shower. But behind the scenes, we may have a leak that we never even know about. That's just continuously losing losing water. Is a so by by installing this in your home, you're going to get a lot more data behind your water footprint and and see where you can uh, change your behavior uh, with water. So for for us, I think it's a very very interesting trajectory that we're that we're on, and I think many consumers that have have put this into their house have some of them have have uh, seen immediate results where they've stopped a leak that could have caused some serious damage. Well, maybe another place we could go shifting gear slightly is you were telling me about a new line that you're releasing in Milan. Yeah, so we just uh, we just came back from Salone de Mobile, so the biggest design fair in the world, and and probably the you know the 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 place that I often you know I would tell everybody in the design world is where do you go once a year to think about the future design, and, and Milan is probably that one one location, and we just had an amazing experience. There's a uh, some, some amazing designs to get introduced in Milan, but we just launched uh, one of our best. It's a, a line called Atrio, and uh, we're calling it the icon of elegance and precision. This is a purely design-driven line, very mm. luxury. Uh, we did an amazing installation, which allowed consumers to kind of experience the design story and the birth of design 
what I what I love about this line, Atru, is is it's derived it's derived from a single geometry. We used only a circle, so it's it's really more about what we didn't do. It's so mm. so kind of pure, iconic, uh, very simple, balanced, and it has this ability to kind of transcend different styles and environments. So it's really designed for the architects, the, the you know the interior designers that want the product to be. You know, this goes back again to some of our earlier points is I view what I do is the jewelry inside of these places. And so we really treated this product like a personal accessory for uh, the environment that it will live in. And, and that was that was really our motivation behind launching this product in Milan is we wanted to showcase the, the design story. But you immediately came out of this installation and you saw it renovated in our in our brand new Milan showroom. And this is a. It was, you know, it was such a, it was such a fun project for the, for the designers, because this is my view of design is we design the product, but we take it all the way through the experience of an installation, a launch event, you know, a big, you know, so I think this is the role of design. We have to not just do the, 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 the fundamentals of great aesthetics. We have to carry through the story and transfer that to the, the first people that experience this. And I think the, this is a, the response that we've got, we had four different events over the course of Milan, you know, thousands of people coming through the installation exhibition. The press went went quite, quite uh, uh, strong with the response. And I think the market success of this product is already, you know, it's on a it's on a rocket. It's uh, it's really taken off due to that launch in Milan about a month ago. And so will that be a uh, product that's available, a line that's available globally? Yeah, so it's going to be it's going to be one of our, our hopefully our biggest lines. And I really went after this line to to convey what I would call design permanence. I want this line to last a long time. I want it to be the kind of mm-hmm. the workhorse and the icon. And uh, sometimes that's the most sustainable design that you can have, right? So something that yeah you know will last. It will become timeless. It will become so so simple. So that's coming to the U.S. Very very soon, so it's, it's launching in in a month or two. But uh, yeah, it's going global as we speak. I just came back from a tour of Asia and Australia, introducing it to to our architects there. So it's a uh, it's been exciting. What would you say is one of your proudest professional moments as a designer? That's a, that's a that's a great question. Oh, you know, I sometimes I answer that question. It's going to be the next design I work on. <laughs> of because uh, honestly, and I think this is, I mean, I put, you know, the moment I'm faced with a new problem is when I all like I'm re-energized. So while I, while it's very easy to me kind of reflect on like past success where I'm most energized is the next one, the next problem, the next thing to, to work on. But having said that, I'll answer your question with a, with an honest answer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. It probably would be the KitchenAid espresso machine that, that I, I I worked on maybe 15, yeah. 20 years ago. It's still on the market. It's super iconic. It's just, I mean, I want to touch it still. It's just so, you know, it's just, it's just, it just captures uh, the the heart. And I fought for every little detail and it taught me a lot uh, through, through my career. But, you know, there's been other highlights as well. But that's one that sticks out as a as a one that maybe shaped me a little bit as a as a designer. Very nice. We talked a little bit about your mentor previously. Is there anyone else that you would count as as a design hero? Yeah, I I um, 
you know, I have a I have a, a former professor by the name of Stephen Malamed. He's uh, still a professor at University of Illinois Chicago, where I went to school, and uh, he's been a lifelong mentor and and personal friend. And he's not only been somebody that's pushed my career, but he was the one that introduced me to my wife, uh, Susie. And uh, mm. so, so he's somebody that's that's uh, just been there to listen to me and to to push me and to and to really be you know somebody that's known me from a very young age to the to, to maybe the overambitious, you know, designer that I was to, to the designer that I am now, you know, and, and, uh, somebody that has taught me a lot uh, just by listening. Yeah. That's awesome. Shifting gears a little bit, Michael, there, of all the designers that I've spoken with, one of my favorite questions to ask everyone is this understanding of as designers, we tend to be obsessed with many things. So I'm curious what you find that you are most obsessed with right now. My current obsession is really on, I would say, culture. And, and because I'm fortunate in my position to travel, I, I get so much inspiration from stepping into new places, new, new situations. I mean, I think we, we talked a little bit of this around my, you know, around my career experiences of stepping out of, you know, uh, one culture into another one and, and being this, you know, cultural curiosity. Mm -hmm. I think this is just, it's just infected my life in a, in a way that, you know, one of the first things I do oftentimes when I go to a city is, I'm, I'm there on a business trip, but I have to figure out, okay, show me the iconic architecture, show me the, yeah. the, you know, the best of its food, the best of its people, the best of its, its place. And I, and I think I'm just obsessed with how the world lives in, in different places. And I think that relates back to designers because we design for people and we need to have empathy of people. So I think that curiosity for me is, is the biggest driver, the culture. Very cool. Are there any dream projects that you want to do in the future? Get back into coffee, perhaps? <laughs> I would, yeah, actually, I, I mean, this is one I've been thinking about doing is uh, I want to, I actually want to develop, a, a, I just want to design a hand pour coffee system. You know, I want to go back to the mm -hmm. craft of making coffee. It's just a little, little side project. You know, I would, I had this passion for cooking as well, and I would always love to do some outdoor cooking products. You know, there's there's so much I could give you a, a laundry list of, of things that I, I would I would love to do. I mean, fortunately, I'm blessed with a lot of a lot of problems to solve in my in my day job. Uh, so there's there's no lack of opportunity working on things. But, you know, and maybe I would challenge myself with something that I haven't haven't done with. You know, I think uh, I've always always questioned the design of airplanes, for example. Huh. Uh, I spent a lot of time on them and I think they're poorly designed. I think this would be a fun one to, uh, to, to look at. Yeah. I'm not that big of a guy. I'm six foot one, but I, I find that with most planes, I don't fit. <laughs> and I know there are people much larger than me and much smaller than me, but they, they seem, um, for a variety of reasons, but scale in particular has always been not quite right in my mind on planes. Absolutely. I think nobody wants to be that sardine in the middle seat right. when you're, when you're your size, uh, for example, I mean, it's just, uh, it's not a great experience. And I think there's so much opportunity to, to change the, the experience um, in so many different industries. But, you know, I think, uh, 
I'll, I'll stick to I'll stick to uh, the world of uh, of Groa for the moment. But there's there's lots of opportunities here. But there's always opportunities for designers. I have a feeling we could talk for a really long time, but I'm in interest of time before we let you go. Maybe you could share one of your favorite pieces of advice, either that you've received or one of your favorite pieces of advice to pass along to your team. Yeah, I think uh, this goes back to something I wanted to, to, to loop back in. Uh, you know, I was a little bit reflecting on my career with another mentor. And I think in the design world, you know, I think we'll, you have, you have such a long career and to get to a point from, you know, from a junior designer to, to some kind of design leader, I think you need to collect as many experiences and in different industries as, as possible. So what I would encourage any young designer is to one, find their passion, but try something that maybe they don't think they, or something that they wouldn't typically try. And I, and I encourage this very early in your career because it may shape you in, in different ways to be ready uh, to face large, complex environments and you know tasks that you may may never expect it to to do. So, you know, to to get out of your comfort zone, to enter into you know try try that design project that you never thought you would have, have liked, to really open yourself uh, up for those type of experiences. Because I think in the long run, your career is is an investment in the different experiences that you collect along the the way. Oh. And for designers, I think we need to collect as many experiences as, as possible to, uh, to, to design the best way uh, forward. So I think they should job hop very early in their career. Mm -hmm. That would be my recommendation because I'm, I'm looking for diverse experiences. I think more innovation comes out of, out of this. Yeah, love it. That's great advice. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Before I let you go, maybe um, tell us a little bit about where our listeners can find you online and learn more about your company. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm I'm fairly active on on Instagram, so you can find me uh, via Michael Sam. So you can follow my cultural curiosities and, and travel. Um, I'm active on LinkedIn. Sorry, Facebook's private for me, just for for family purposes. But you know, and I think a typical Google search, you'll you'll find a little bit of PR and press uh, around me from from there. So, uh, you know, do your do your homework on me and reach out and connect. You know, LinkedIn or, or Instagram are two uh, two good ways. Active on Twitter, although not that frequently. Very cool. We'll, we'll be sure and link to all of that stuff in the show notes. Michael, it's great talking with you and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, kids, that's show number 105 officially in the books. Don't forget to check out my new 59 Second Friday videos on YouTube. I'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe and let me know what you think. You can find them at youtube.com slash Josh Miles. Of course, you can get all of today's show notes on our website at obsessedshow.com. And if you haven't already, while you're there, add your email address to our newsletter. I'll update you on some of my favorite new episodes and some of the cool things I find in my daily obsessions. Also, we've added links on the show to all the places you can find the show. iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Spotify. So no matter where you find your podcast, chances are you can listen to Obsessed with Design from there. Head over to obsessedshow.com to find those links. Also on iTunes, I'd appreciate it if you are not already to subscribe and leave us a rating and review to help others find the show. 
Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Our show is edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit BrassyBroad.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.